So um, yesterday, Gill spoke about how concentration sets up the conditions for seeing things as they are. This is where insight arises, an understanding of what we see. The insights that happen here, they have a, a deep effect on us. When we see something clearly, it's hard to ignore. And something in us changes. And that change, that change in our understanding leads to the next step of liberative dependent arising. Disenchantment or nibida in Pali. Um, the Pali word nibida means without finding. It refers to without finding what we expect. Um, there's a, um, a story in the suttas that describes it. A dog comes across a bone that's been exposed to the element for months and months. And he gnaws on it for a long time. And finally he realizes he's not getting any satisfaction. And he turns away. It's because his desire for meat is not satisfied by the bone. So he becomes disenchanted with it and spits it out. So, <clears throat> now the word disenchantment can have like a negative connotation. Another way of looking at it is that we're no longer enchanted by something under the spell of something. It literally means you've been freed of your delusion. To no longer be enchanted, to be under spell of things, we were under the spell of, to no longer be caught. Many years ago, I read, I read a story about a prince who fell under the spell of a sorcerer and was enchanted into forgetting who he was. Of course, as it is with fairy tales, by the end of the story, the spell was broken and he became disenchanted and remembered who he was. I think when I read the story, I didn't really realize what kind of uh, metaphor I was giving. <laughs> um, <clears throat> there's a saying that some people look at life through rose-colored glasses. It doesn't mean that they focus on what's good in people and situations, but that they're not being realistic. They're not seeing the truth. They're ignoring the difficult things in life. Rose-colored glasses, though, are one filter. If you think about like colored glass, it filters the light. It limits how clearly we see the world. They take off those rose-colored glasses and they start seeing the world realistically. It's easy sometimes to see the process of disenchantment in children. They get a new toy they wanted for months and they're excited and fascinated with it. They can't stop playing with it at first. And then after a while, it loses its appeal. Like the dog with the bone, they, at some point, they don't find any satisfaction in it anymore. And it sits in the corner. Mm -hmm. 
We can watch a magician perform their magic and we can be so enchanted and so fascinated. But usually when we learn how they did it, we get disenchanted and we're no longer interested so much. But disenchantment is a natural process that we've been doing on some level all our lives. It's part of our maturing. And it arises naturally when we see something clear. The things that used to fascinate us lose their allure. The things we may have chased after when we were younger no longer interest us. When I was a preteen, I, wa- I really wanted to fit in. And um, I was an immigrant, you know, and um, you know, didn't quite know how to do things the way everybody else did. And um, so I studied the fashion magazines and started wearing makeup every day. And um, my mother would iron my hair every morning, put on the ironing board and iron my hair so I could have nice straight hair. And then I learned how to put on makeup. And, um, but um, <clears throat> I started sewing even, I, I, you know, so I could have really fashionable clothes. So I, I got to the point where I actually couldn't leave the house without wearing my makeup. But doing all of that, all of that, all the things I did, didn't make me feel like I belonged. And one day I met some people who were, um, they were different, which is very different, you know. I think um, in that time we've called them flower children. Um, they didn't care about fashion. They didn't care about makeup. They were just more interested in enjoying life and loving each other. The enchantment broke. I stopped trying to look like I thought I should. And it was so freeing just to be able to go outside without makeup. What a relief. So when we get disenchanted, something's lighter. Something's lighter. And it was so much more fun. A common place that people uh, get very enchanted, and maybe some of you have gone through this, some of you more than once, is falling in love. It often, um, falling in love is often a place where we get very, very enchanted. All those love hormones coursing through our bodies, the object of our love just seems perfect. Even their imperfections are perfectly cute and lovable. So, and they're still perfect, even with their imperfections. And there's a feeling of being satisfied every time we're with them. And it seems at that time that the fairy tales are true. We found true love and we will live happily ever after. But as some of you know, it fades. And then there might be a feeling of something missing something no longer satisfying. And unless we've developed the respect and friendship of a relationship, some people start looking for someone else to fall in love with. Now believing they just need to find the right person this time, then they'll be complete. Sometimes, People work really hard at their jobs, have a successful career, get a loving family, 
get a big house, lots of toys, and they have everything they thought they wanted. And yet they become disenchanted with it all. Instead of disenchantment, people might call it a midlife crisis. So they search for sometimes unskillful ways of filling that, uh, filling that gap, filling that emptiness. A lot of people come to the practice because they've become disenchanted with how they're living their lives. It no longer works for them. Maybe they're disenchanted by the pursuit of money, the pursuit of status, chasing pleasure. And those things are no longer driving us. And so we look to something in ourselves for meaning, for, uh, for a way to live our lives. And though we've been encha- disenchanted over and over as we mature in life, you know, the things of childhood are no longer so relevant the things from our teenage years. All those things, you know, we've been disenchanted over and over. And the cycle, but we usually, we often just pick up something new to be enchanted by. In this cycle of liberative depending arising, instead, instead of finding something new to be enchanted with, we gradually shed our conditioned tendency to be enchanted by the things of this life that can't possibly satisfy us. So most of the things we've been enchanted by in this life are things that really don't don't ultimately satisfy us Uh, don't really provide the nourishment for our hearts. Disenchantment is a very deep letting go. Letting go that arises naturally from seeing clearly. It's not something that we can make happen. When we see that clinging to anything to anything at all isn't satisfying. We become disenchanted. Sometimes when we wake up from a delusion, there can be a feeling of loss or disorientation. When I was a teenager, the spiritual teacher I was following, that, that I was following, uh, taught me that if I surrounded myself in a white light, nothing bad would happen to me. I really believed it. As a teenager, I was invulnerable, but um, as a consequence, I felt really relaxed, hitchhiking long distances alone, and did it regularly with lots of confidence. I just enveloped myself in this white light. One day I got picked up hitchhiking by someone who refused to let me out of the car. I was fortunate that I was able to get away before anything bad happened, but it scared me. 
And it dawned on me that the white light didn't work. And that was disappointing, but nowhere near as disappointing where I realized that maybe my teacher wasn't to be relied upon to tell me the truth. And I became disenchanted with him. Though it took a bit more than that for, for me to actually leave the teacher and the community. But when I did, it was a very painful loss in my life. And it was really disorienting. But I never looked back, not for a moment, and wished that I still, still believed in that teacher. There was a lightness that came anyways, despite of the pain, despite of the loss of the community, of all the good things that were part of that life. Disenchantment comes from wisdom. You see that something in your life isn't living up to its promise, so you let it go. For instance, um, if any of you are lifelong over planners, you know, we plan the same thing over and over. Um, even on retreat, I, I used to. Um, plan what I'll wear the next day and plan what um, uh, I'd look at my day and say, okay, I'll do this during this walking period, then I'll do this, then I'll do that. Um, but, but not in a useful way, but in a kind of um, compulsive way, obsessive way. Um, but you might ask, you might consider, what's the promise of planning? Why are we enchanted with planning? That if I plan something over and over and rehearse it, that I won't ever make a mistake, that it will always turn out right, maybe that it will keep me safe and nothing bad will happen. Is there any real value to over planning? But when we see clearly how over planning robs us of a peace, and that it actually doesn't make us make less mistakes, that we're no safer, then we can become disenchanted with this endless planning. I spent a lot of time planning on retreats, uh, but um, it took a while of hanging with how much, how stressful that was before it finally really penetrated. That all that time that I was sort of planning, um, I was trying to numb something, I was trying to not feel something, and it didn't feel good. There was, it wasn't very pleasurable, but it was pushing something way underneath it. But I didn't make myself get disenchanted it happened through really investigating it, through discriminating wisdom, when I could see really clearly that it wasn't helping me. But the process of disenchantment 
Um, you can you can intellectually know that, but there's a way that in the practice we know that deep in our bodies, like deep in our bones, this enchantment comes at its own time in its own way. The teachings point to four primary delusions that support our tendency to be enchanted, to be deluded. These are the delusions that insight can dispel. The first delusion is viewing what's impermanent as if it were permanent. We unconsciously tend to believe in permanence most of us just assume we'll be alive tomorrow. So because we tend to believe in permanence, we might make our happiness dependent on things that change, usually on other people, on our health, our jobs, our lives, our status. Though we, again, we most of us intellectually understand this, but on a deeper level, we don't register it. This delusion is so prevalent that the Buddha recommended contemplating these five daily recollections. And as I say to them, maybe take a moment and really connect with each one. I am of the nature to grow old. I cannot avoid aging. I am of the nature to become ill or injured. I cannot avoid illness or injury. I am of the nature to die. I cannot avoid death. All that is mine, dear and delightful, will change and vanish. I am the owner of my actions. I am born of my actions. I am related to my actions. I am supported by my actions. Any thoughts, Words or deeds I do, good or evil, those I will inherit. The second delusion is that we mistake what is suffering to be happiness. We tend to believe that if we chase what we want and we reject what we don't want, that it's a good strategy for happiness. Again, as, as practitioners, we know better, but how deeply do we know that? And since none of us can get what we want quite a bit of the time, this view leads us to a state of being perpetually unsatisfied. Dukkha. 
The third distortion of view is that we believe that what is empty of self is self. We identify with things that are insubstantial as if they were real. We identify with our looks. Have any of you looked at yourself on the, you know, in Zoom and, and um, oh, how do I look? How do I look? Um, or jobs we identify with, or children, or status in society. For many people these days, how many friends we have on Facebook. But the world of ideas, the world of self, can be even more seductive than any material attachments. How much do we cling to how good it makes us feel when people agree with us? How much do we cling when they don't agree with us? Especially when they don't agree with us about ideas we hold dear. How much suffering do we have when we meet those who hold a different political view? We can hold onto opinions very tightly and the self can solidify it into a very powerful, I'm the one that's right. And how much are we run by what other people think of us? Wanting to be liked, to be admired, to be seen a certain way. And even on retreats, this can come up strongly. I remember uh, going into practice discussion, trying to have a good experience. You know, I wanted to have a deep experience so that my teacher would be impressed with me. And then I felt ashamed that that's how I felt. And then I went to hide from my teacher that I wanted to impress them. Uh, so it was uh, a lot of dukkha, a lot of dukkha. But our identities are useful if we can take them on and off like a coat. When we need them, we pick them up. We're a parent, an activist, a teacher, a cook, a friend, a child. And we take them off when we don't need it, when it's not useful. The fourth distortion is that we mistake what is not beautiful to be beautiful. We even have a saying for that, um, beauty is in the eye of the beholder. Might be easy to see it when it comes to art. Is a piece of art inherently beautiful? I saw a piece of rope with a knot on the wall that sold for $20,000. I used to um, live in the desert. 
the vast openness of the desert deeply, deeply inspires me. And it just was so beautiful to me. But if you're in the same desert and have no water, the desert no longer seems so beautiful. One of the practices uh, the Buddha recommended uh, for weakening this view was reflecting on the unbeautiful parts of the body, like pus, phlegm, sweat, blood, bile, feces. If there had been a microscope at the time of the Buddha, maybe he would have recommended that we use a microscope to look at the more than trillion bacteria in your skin. Somebody they said after they saw that they couldn't sleep that night. To support the conditions for becoming disenchanted with these delusions, the Buddha also recommended practices such as meditating in charnel grounds, which are places where dead bodies are left uncovered on, uh, and to decompose. That brings home impermanence. That brings home the not beautiful. I don't know if they still have those, if, they, if they're still uh, used anywhere. In this culture, we try to hide this unbeautiful side of life. Mortuaries have very skilled people that can use makeup to hide the unbeautiful, so people won't be uncomfortable. The charnel ground meditations lead us to see that things appear more, that the things that appear attractive from one perspective, such as from outside of the body, will not be attractive from another perspective, such as the inside of the body. Things that appear attractive right now may not be attractive later. Beautiful flowers decompose. Somebody before, before uh, at one of the practice discussions um, showed me a, um, a decomposing leaf. Connecting with that. But in our culture, we tend to um, prune the wilting flowers because they're not as attractive. But on the other hand, the wilting flowers feed the soil and they nourish new life that may be beautiful again. And in the perspective of some gardeners, that it's the whole cycle that's beautiful. Beauty is relative. It's dependent on perspective. That's the eye of the beholder. But it's fleeting. It's impermanent. And it can't be relied upon for our happiness. The practice of mindfulness calls for us to carefully look at whatever comes up, regardless if it's beautiful or not, if it's wanted or not, and to be at ease with it. Do not grasp it, not push it away, 
The disenchantment that arises from practice is a deep letting go. And when we let go, we're lighter. It allows us to be in the world in a simple way, in a peaceful way, without anything having to be any particular way. And as the mind is released from the agitation of enchantment, it becomes quieter and quieter, which leads to the next step in this process of liberative dependent arising. The next step, dispassion can arise. So I'd like to um, end with a short poem from um, Kozen Ichigyo, a 14th century Zen monk. Empty-handed, I entered the world. Barefoot, I leave it. My coming, my going, two simple happenings that got entangled. So let's sit for a couple of minutes.
Thank you. And may you all be disenchanted. <laughs>